Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. First up this week, Ronnie Baer. Along with Ian Kennedy, Baer is the co-curator of Class Distinctions at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. The exhibition, on view through January 18, 2016, looks at the ways in which social difference, for example, the fine lines that separate the portrayal of noble from wealthy merchant, plays out in Dutch Golden Age art. The exhibition's outstanding catalog was published by the MFA. On the second segment, Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco curator Tricia O'Regan discusses the presentation of two major murals in Jewel City, art from San Francisco's Panama Pacific International Exposition. This year marks the 100th anniversary of that show, San Francisco's World's Fair. It'll be on view through January 10th, 2016 at the De Young. But first, Ronnie Bear. After the break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. The Getty's new exhibition, Power and Pathos, Bronze Sculpture of the Hellenistic World, on view through November 1st, brings together 50 of the most important bronzes from antiquity. From sculptures known since the Renaissance to spectacular recent discoveries from the depths of the sea, these innovative, realistic bronze works of physical power and emotional intensity have been dubbed a can't-miss by the LA Times. A catalog of the same name brings the exhibition into your home. To learn more, visit getty.edu. back. Ronnie Bear, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So for many years, Dutch art historians have had a great deal of fun teasing out the meanings and possible symbolic associations of kind of every last object in every last Dutch painting. And it seems to me your show and, and book pulls back from that to, to examine class in Dutch society, upper, middle, lower, noble, merchant, laborer, and so forth are represented in Dutch painting which is a neat idea. So how, or, so why was that something that came to interest you and your co-curator, Ian Kennedy? Well, that's exactly the point, that while these paintings we know well now are not snapshots of daily life, which was the kind of 19th century take on Dutch pictures, we also felt like looking at symbolic meanings was only half the importance of, of these images. So we tried to look at paintings that would actually shed some light on what 17th century Dutch society was really about. So the idea of class distinctions, or really how we were thinking of it, is how do these pictures express the rank and status of the people? What what are they doing? What are they wearing? What are their surroundings? What can tease out about society that really hasn't found much traction in the past half century or century. So the book is organized into eight sections. Is, is the exhibition as well? Yes, it is. There's, there's a large first room that is subdivided into stud holders in the court, 
nobles and noble aspirations and regents and wealthy merchants. But what's wonderful about the installation from the curatorial point of view is the the sense of scale that these paintings bring to the exhibition that you don't really have in the book. Ah, so you're suggesting that the paintings of the stadtholders and, and, and the court are much larger than the paintings, perhaps, of the indigent. Actually, not so much stadtholders in the court, but these regents and wealthy merchants. What I was thinking about is in this first room, it becomes very clear that the regents and wealthy merchants are using portraiture to assert their their status, their society status, as opposed to, for instance, nobles. Nobles tended to go to local painters and document their likenesses as, you know, a point of genealogy. So it could hang on, this portrait could hang on a, a wall with the fathers and grandfathers. So those portraits were seemed to be less concerned with quality and more concerned with efficacy, or there was a reason for these portraits in terms of genealogy. When you get to these regents and wealthy merchants, scale alone, I mean, there we have a painting by Rembrandt and Andre Stokroff and a painting by Hals of Willem van Heethausen. These are actually life-size, full-length paintings. So you walk in the room and you go, wow. In scale, you know, you think about the size of Dutch, of Dutch houses. So already the houses had to be large enough to accommodate these paintings, but we also know that Hankelson put his painting in the reception room of his house. So when you walked in, there was no denying his importance. I mean, this is a real kind of pretentious, over-the-top image of himself that he was proud to display to any visitor to his house. Well, let's dip into the eight sections a bit. We probably can't hit each one because we'll run out of time. So I'll try and pick and choose some that kind of kind of pull everything together. And I want to start with the first section on uh, in the show on stadtholders and the court, and 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 to simultaneously kind of give readers an idea of how you lay out the catalog. Because one of the things about the catalog that's really special is that it's not just a presentation of paintings with an essay for every painting. The essays that you wrote, several with Ian Kennedy that accompany the plates, you know, in those essays, you build stories about Dutch history and the relationships between key figures. And these are stories that are built around the paintings. So the, the paintings are literally part of, you know, they're kind of literally players in a narrative that, that we get in the book. So the show includes and almost starts with, it's it's maybe the third or fourth painting, a Garrett von Honthorst portrait of one uh, Amalia van Solms. And later in that section, we have two Jan van der Heydens of a spectacular estate outside The Hague. Can you talk us through how you get the reader and, and I assume the viewer from the one to the next two? What, what do they have to do with each other? Sure. Well, the Stadthunders in the Court section, of course, I wanted to present. Well, one of the things about the show was that I wanted to present Dutch painting throughout the century in different centers, often Dutch exhibitions focus on their monographic, so you're looking at the work of a single artist, or they're cut through a certain point in time. Often they are devoted to either portraits or genre scenes or landscapes. I wanted to give a cross-section of Dutch painting, with the exception of still life that we did not include because that seemed to be taking us off on too large a tangent. But So for stockholders in the court, I wanted to start with Prince Maurits, who was the first Ralph Stadthouder. He was the, the son of the father of 
the New Dutch Republic, who was William I or William I. So I have a painting by a local artist of Prince Nye. Then I have a painting by Van Dyke of his half-brother, Hendrik. And for me, the connecting glue between these two, because the formats are very similar, but as I said, one's a local artist, one's an artist of international stature, was the appearance of the Winter King and Queen in exile in The Hague. And they brought this kind of new jolt of splendor, this new courtly elegance to The Hague. And I think that explains the shift from from going to the local Nierveld, who was a very good portraitist, and actually Frederick Hendrick initially used him. But this idea the Hay coming into its own in the context of European courts is something that's expressed by the choice of the Dutch Hogwarts, who had started out as a Utrecht Caravagist, followed, you know, at was was very much aspired to be like Van Dyke. And Hontworth went to the English court. Hontworth saw how valued Van Dyke was at the English court. And when he came back to the Netherlands, he ended up being the preferred painter of the court in The Hague. And that was the Winter King and Queen, but it was also Frederick Hendrick's wife, Amalia Van Sons. And then we get to the two Van der Heydens, and what's the relationship between Amalia Van Solms and the, the two Van der Heydens? So the point of the, this part of the exhibition, Stadtholders in the Court, is to feature courtly pastimes, courtly places, courtly people in addition to Stadtholders. So the Haustenbos was a residence that Amalia wanted to build for her husband, Frederick Hendrick out of the country, so they had a place to go of their own. And she worked with the architects and art advisors to envision, you know, and envision this this lovely retreat. Unfortunately, Hendrick died before they could actually go and appreciate it. But there are two views of the house both that we are from the Metropolitan Museum. And they show not only this palace, but also the gardens that surround the palace and the people who were in the city. One of them has gardeners in addition to courtiers, and one of them shows courtiers being greeted by a page who bows very deeply. Yeah, they're 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 pretty great paintings. We'll have images of, of both of them on manpodcast.com. One of the biggest sections in the show is on regents and wealthy merchants. I think we all know what merchants are. So maybe before we jump in, you could tell us what or who regents were. So most regents were wealthy merchants. Not all wealthy merchants were regents. And regents were the mythical officers. They were the magistrates and they were the mayors of the various cities. So in this exhibition, we have regents of Amsterdam, and we have regents of Deventer, and we have regents of Delft. First of all, to broaden the scope of the places we're talking about, and then to compare the attitudes of more provincial regions with that uh, of Amsterdam. This is a section of the show with a lot of portraits. It provides a lot of opportunity for the viewer to find differences in everything from pose to apparel to sighting of the various sitters. What are some of the ways in some of these paintings in which we see class playing out or even aspiration playing out? 
the first thing that's very striking, both for regents and wealthy merchants, is the size of these paintings. Two of them that I have juxtaposed one another in the exhibition is by Rembrandt of Antichrist, and one is by Franz Halls of Willem von Haythausen. They're side by side because they're both life-size full-length portraits. One is of a regent, one is of a wealthy merchant, but you wouldn't necessarily uh, make a distinction between them in terms of the fact that they're very imposing, the fact that the people who commission them evidently clearly have a lot of money, and in their kind of statement of, of self-importance. Should we, in any of these pictures, take anything from where this, the, the pose figure is looking at us or off to the side? Well, in the portraits of Tim Lopen and his wife, for example, they are placed before an expanse of landscape with a nursemaid and baby in the distance. This really alludes to the fact that they have a lot of, you know, money. They have money enough to probably afford a country house or land in the city that was probably at a premium at the time. So in that, in that sense, yes, placement of these figures, he was a very rich and important region of Amsterdam. If you look at the half-length portrait of Isaac Massa that Franz Hals painted, and that's a really nice juxtaposition to the full-length portrait of Haythausen, this painting, this image of Massa is a much more intimate view of the sitter, and he was a, a friend of Franz Hals's, but what interested me about the painting is that there's this glimpse out the window of conifers that allude to his work as a trader with the Baltic. And he's holding a twig of uh, a, a holly or something. Well, he's holding holly, and that's said to be a symbol of friendship, alluding to the fact that he and, and Hals were friends. Well, I think it. I think it. It is much more in keeping with the fact that you know he traded with with Russia and with the Baltic. And then, of course, in the in the same vein, one of the things I love about this exhibition are these. I have these succession of double portraits. And if we look at the double portrait of Abraham del Court and his wife by Bartholomeus von Helst, you're just knocked over by the shimmering sheen of her dress. And it turns out that Abraham Delcourt is a textile merchant. So he knew who to go to, to who knew how to paint this like nobody's business. And in a sense, he's not only advertising his marital bliss, but it's almost like a calling card of his wealth. So this section also includes some examples of, of, of people with aspirations to move up, as it were. And it includes one of my favorite Dutch paintings in America, Jan Steen's fantasy interior at the Nelson in Kansas City. And I've always loved the way Steen in this this painting holds all kinds of disparate things that are happening together. It never flies apart. It holds together. And in your catalog essay, you write, or maybe, maybe Ian Kennedy wrote this, as it was his painting, sort of, that this painting is about upper middle class aspirations to gentility. How so? What in this painting shows that? And of course, we'll show it on manpodcast.com. Well, it was very, this is one of these cases where 
we wrote about the painting in one section, but in the installation, it's a wonderful bridge between the small section of the show devoted to nobles and aspiring nobles and the large section that's devoted to regents and wealthy merchants. Because in the in the noble aspiring noble part, we have that very funny painting by Kalp of the two boys on horseback as though they were noble in front of a noble estate with hunting going on in the background. And it's very obviously aspirational there on horseback and the equestrian form was something that was usually reserved for high nobility or aristocracy. And the the men were just the grandsons of a rich Dordrecht merchant who bought the title and bought the manor and bought the rights to hunt. So they 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 were not nobles because there was no monarch to appoint nobles in the, the new Dutch Republic. By the same so that's the country and that's you know something that's very obviously noble aspirations. But here in the city where we have Jan Steen who's depicted his friend Gerrit Schouten, together, the, the two guys are together. It's aspirational because the room is very spacious. It's tapestry lined. The The children, the four children of Schouten are very elongated and look completely aristocratic both in, in their activities, they're playing music or being served oysters, and, and in their clothes. I mean, the clothes are the incredibly wealthy, they, they drip wealth. In, in distinction to how the older generation that is scouted and stained depict, are depicted. So that's, that's aspirational. The, the harpsichord, where the oldest daughter is complete fancy. There's a little bit of momentum in the fact that there is a skull over the fireplace and the Skelton's brewery was called the elephant and there's an image of an elephant also in this very expensive auricular frame over the, the fireplace. You've got a black servant who is over by the wine cooler and then you have a, a woman in the in the distant room, who seems to be preparing a meal of some kind. She had been called Scouten's wife, but we really think she's a maidservant. She's wearing a blue apron to protect her. You know, that doesn't show stains so clearly. But she's aspirational because she's wearing a beauty patch. And the beauty patch was a sign of a lady. Ladies wore them to heighten the whiteness of their skin. And we know there were fulminations and pamphlets and from the from the pulpit that these maidservants were very uppity and they were supposed to be staying in their station. And yet, sometimes they dressed like ladies and sometimes they wore these beauty patches. So there's all sorts of, there are all sorts of objects that allude to the aspirational quality of this family. Brewers were the among the richest citizens of a city. So he probably did have a lot of money. So as we move down the social ladder, so to speak, and come to professions and trades, are there any particular things that fall out of paintings and any particular things that we should look at beginning to come in? Now, the upper middle class, as you'll see, the upper middle class were still able to afford to commission portraits. So, you know, the first, the, the upper class, there are lots of portraits because that is 
uh, as we talked about the, the reasons for commissioning these portraits were varied. We didn't talk about the reason for commissioning, you know, the Stadtholders. The, the Miravelt, for instance, of Mauritz was the original painting. Mauritz only agreed to sit to Miravelt one time, but there are countless versions of this painting. And it's like today, when you go to the Netherlands, the, the image of the king and queen is in every post office. And many people would have had images of, of Mauritz as, as proponents of the House of Arms in their homes, so or he would have sent them out as, as diplomatic gifts. So, so the uses of portraiture were extensive for the upper class. In the middle class, the upper middle class could still afford to commission portraits. Somebody like the shipbuilder Jan Reichsen, he is a very successful shipbuilder and he was an early investor in the Dutch East India Company, so he could well afford to commission a portrait of Rembrandt. But as we go down the scale, we find the images of professions and trades become genre paintings, and certainly the women at work are all genre paintings. The thing about the Dutch Republic that's you know very well known is that with all of this excess money, that success in trade brought to the Netherlands, there was a burgeoning production of paintings of all, at all price points. So that artists began to specialize. Some artists took months and months to paint the hand of a broom, and other artists could dash out two or three paintings a day. So depended on the amount of care and time that went into the production. It depended on the subject matter. It depended on the, the quality of the colors chosen. There was so much that went into it, and artists tended to specialize and corner the market. And so even laborers could afford to own paintings. So the genre paintings that we have in the exhibition are a very of a very good quality because I wasn't very interested in showing the full range of art production in the Netherlands. So I really went for paintings that did not seem to have an obvious symbolic intent and that, that, that were of excellent quality in great condition. So the genre paintings that we ended up with are interesting because many of them are the only painted depiction I know of certain subjects. So that was one of the fascinating things that came out of this exhibition that was not intentional to begin with. But because of that search I, I just I told you about, you know, we ended up with a picture, the only painted uh, depiction of a notary. The, the painting we have of a barber surgeon is unlike other more caricatural images of the barber surgeon. And he also has the greatest staircase I can think of in Dutch art. <laughs> that kind of staircase is very closely associated with Leiden painting. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty extraordinary. There's also a crocodile hanging in that painting, which is weird. Well, yeah, but that was the sign of the barber surgeon. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, if you look at the women at work, which is in this same section, there are, again, images in this, the only painted depiction of a woman ironing. 
or women putting linen away. Let me stop you there because I, I specifically wanted to bring up that painting because it pulls a number of things together. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's so in your essay, you, you note that housewifery itself just as a thing. It was a certain indication of status in the Dutch Republic because it was a reminder almost that both halves of a couple didn't necessarily have to work. And also in the essay, there is just a really delightful, entertaining essay by an oh dear, I'm going to make a mess of this name, Sani de Zut. De Zutte, exactly. I was close. About table linens, which is which is pretty terrific. And so the painting that you were bringing up when I interrupted is is a is a de hook of interior with women beside a linen cupboard and they're in the process of uh, either taking out or putting in linens. So I guess I guess first let's start with this this painting. What what is de hook providing us about what they're doing and what is their position relative to each other? So there's been a lot of discussion about who these women are. And that was one of the joys of working on this exhibition is because I could gather together a group of scholars who were not art historians who could answer all the questions that I had about. Ah. <laughs> so we we started with a, a historian who was able to provide the background on how the 17th century thought about class themselves so that we were not imposing on the structure of the exhibition a you know anachronistic idea and we had this wonderful costume historian and i wanted her to talk about servants because there's often confusion about who some of these women are in these paintings and i in this particular case the the two women had been identified as a mistress and a servant. And so I asked this historian, whose name is Marika de Vinkel, I said, how do you tell a mistress from a maid? That's really what I want you to focus on. And she feels very strongly that this is not a mistress and maid, but rather a mother and daughter because of the richness of the, the clothing. And it makes complete sense to me because linen was almost a sacred part of, of household life, the the quantity and quality of the linen you had was a measure of your status. It was a measure of your wealth. Everybody had linen. Even poor people had linen, but it wasn't of great quality and they didn't have much of it. And they're standing by this linen cupboard, which was one of the most imposing and among the most expensive pieces of furniture in a Dutch home. And the woman often wore, or the housewife wore the key to the linen cupboard around her waist, except the key is in the lock here. So she's taken it off from her, her body and it's, in the, it's still in the door of the linen cupboard. So this kind of sacred, hushed view of the putting away of newly folded linen is really exceptional in Dutch painting. And it also, of course, is a wonderful example of de Hoek's amazing style, right? So this is the this is self-painting. It's self-painting par excellence. It's hanging next to the great Pope from the National Gallery in London of the courthouse, uh, courtyard in Delft, and that's an exterior view. And this time it is a servant who's charged with taking care of a child. So in the installation and the exhibition, we have three tables, one devoted to each of the classes, and on the tables are 
the same object that would have been used by each of the classes, and they differ in form or in material or in decoration, but the usage was the same. And on these tables, we also have linens, and we have Orpheus charming the animals for the upper class, which very intricate damask with of a myth mythological scene. For the middle class, we have scattered flowers. And for the lower class, it's not damask, but just a diaper weave linen. But when we were installing this, we decided to keep the folds in the linens because in the 17th century, you see it that way in painting. And in the 17th century, it meant that it was taken from the linen press, so it was clean. And the folds indicated that it hadn't been used yet. And I thought that was pretty cool. Ah, the, there, there is a, a painting in the catalog of uh, Vandeveld's Merry Company banqueting on a terrace that shows very clearly those folds. Like, that's, not a, that's not in the exhibition. That's right, right, right. Yeah, it's just in the catalog, and 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 we'll we'll uh, grab it for manpodcast.com just so that's evident, just so we can see the folds. So, so speaking of linen, there's there's something of a let's let's try to tie this to labor a little bit. There are more than a few great Dutch paintings of bleaching of of bleaching of linen out in fields beyond towns, and uh, you have a particularly great one in your show. What what is that painting, and why is bleaching something that painters are not only fond of showing but fond of showing from on high? So this painting you're referring to by Jakob von Reistel is one of maybe 15 views of bleaching grounds outside of Harlem. Harlem was an important center of textiles, and Harlem particularly was known for the clean, clear water that was kind of filtered through the dunes. And it was also a place where there was buttermilk was easily accessible because of the dairy of production. So those are the two things that you needed for bleaching linen. To answer your question of why he was fond of depicting linen bleaching, I would argue that he was fond of the patterns that the linen mason has laid out on the grass to bleach. My point about this is the people who are doing this labor, and it must have been backbreaking labor. I mean, the fact that this linen was sodden and drenched and was carried around in baskets and had to be laid out flat to dry, this had to be very arduous work, and much of it was carried out by women who weren't paid very much. To say nothing of the clearing of the field in the first place, which would have been a bit of work. Yeah, unless the field was already like that. Yeah, if, yeah, yeah. Von, von Rusdale, you know, can't, I guess, kind of can't resist adding some trees and some forest, so. Um. <laughs> but in this particular instance, this is a known domain, so the historian was able to actually say this is a place called Dumol, it's near Blumendal, it has a dairy, it has a lighthouse, I mean, he could actually identify it because of the shape of the field. Not, not, not bad for uh, 350 years later. The final section in the show chronicles where the classes meet. 
and so when you have a painting in which a wealthy person is considering or dispersing charity, I can understand why that's necessarily a topic of interest for a, you know, a commissioner of a painting. But take the, the Jan Steen in this section of, of merrymaking outside and in, which features lots of social classes thrown together. We see that in their dress. We see that in other ways. Why would this subject interest Steen, who kind of painted a bunch of variations on the idea? And then why would this interest a collector? Well, this particular instance has a very long pictorial tradition, as opposed to many of the paintings in this section of the exhibition. The, the Kermesse goes back to at least the early 16th century. This was an annual fair that allowed peasants to throw off the cares of their daily life for a week or more. Every year, they could eat and drink, and they had markets, and and aristocratic urban folk would come to watch. They would come to watch because perhaps they found it amusing or they were socially superior and took solace in the fact that they didn't act like this. So this is actually a late rendition of a very standard pictorial theme. It's, a, it's really a super painting because all of the details of license are so funny. And so you do have, you really kind of have the the base peasants doing what they like to do. They're dancing with a band and one is vomiting from an upstairs window. A mother is finished suckling her child at, at the lower left. And then you've got these very this very fancy dressed woman coming with her two children to look on. But what's unavoidable is in the foreground is a, a woman crouching to relieve herself and that is a direct quotation from a Rembrandt print. So Stain is not only harking back to a theme that has a long pictorial tradition, but he's actually taking details from his own contemporaries. Well, Ronnie Baer, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thanks for having me. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation presents CODA Digital Excavations in African Art, open now through March 19th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 Coda reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience created by Rampant Interactive, St. Louis-based software designers, and the Pulitzer's first game developers and residents. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Mark Rothko, a retrospective, featuring more than 60 paintings by this abstract expressionist pioneer. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, which traces the development of Rothko's signature style. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Rothko for more. Welcome back. My next guest is Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco conservator Tricia O'Regan. She worked on the presentation of two major murals in Jewel City, art from San Francisco's Panama Pacific International Exposition. This year marks the 100th anniversary of San Francisco's World's Fair. 
The show, on view through January 10th, 2016 at the De Young, features over 200 works that were featured mostly in the fine arts galleries of the fair. The show's catalog was published by University of California Press. The fair, which was launched to celebrate the opening of the Panama Canal and which also celebrated San Francisco's recovery after the 1906 earthquake and fire, also featured 33 mostly outdoor murals, including William de Leftwich Dodge's Mammoth, Atlantic, and Pacific, and Arthur Frank Matthews' The Victory of Culture Over Force. Atlantic and Pacific, all 47 feet long of it, is installed in the de Young's atrium. Be sure to look for the video of its installation on manpodcast.com. Trisha Regan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Let's start by kind of establishing the ubiquity of painting at the 2015 fair and then kind of get to the murals. Throughout the fair, 20,000 paintings were installed, (laughs) which is an astonishing, I mean, just a jaw-droppingly astonishing number. And there were 35 murals commissioned to fill major places around the fair. You were you've worked on on several of the ones that are still extant, including William de Leftwich Dodge's Atlantic and Pacific, which is up in the atrium of the De Young, and Arthur Frank Matthews' The Victory of Culture Over Force. Let's 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 start with the Dodge. Could I guess could you quickly describe it? Tell us where it was and kind of what you wanted to and ended up doing with it. The Dodge was stored at, well, it was, it's actually owned by the, uh, the War Memorial in the city. So it's a city. Which is where the opera and the ballet. Right. And it was stored in offsite storage. And when it first came, well, I have to go back, actually. In the beginning, Jim Gantz, the curator, uh, thought to use two of the lunette-shaped murals, the Hassam, Fruit and Flowers by Hassam, and the, uh, the Matthews. We looked at both of those because we happened to have been storing them for the War Memorial here at the mm-hmm. De Young. The Matthews was always going to be used. We thought it was a, a, Jim thought it was very important to show that. And the Hassam was not in such good condition. It, it just hadn't, it had some cleavage problems. And, but we were, it was his decision to uh, sort of look at the other murals. And once he saw the picture of the Dodge and how important it was, because it was, you know, given such pride of place in the in the exposition, we went. We made arrangements to have it taken out of storage and rolled out so we could see it at its at the storage facility. And so we went over there, and once we all saw it, it was so beautiful and in such good condition. It was so huge, though. Uh, he he wanted to use it. So we, I think the original idea was to have it in the show, not in the atrium, as you said. But the, it would have it would have been kind of odd because you'd been, you know, standing right in front of it and you really should see it from a distance like you should see all the murals. Then he came up with the idea of putting it up high in the, in Wilsey Court. And then we got the go ahead from the director at the time and it was just a go. And so the Hassam dropped out and it was just the, the two that I ended up working on, the Matthews and the Dodge. You, you mentioned that the Dodge is huge. It's 47 feet long. Yeah, by 12. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's huge. When we, when we first rolled it out, we could only roll out half of it. And so it was kind of a mystery what the other half looked at. But all the murals, all the murals had been conditioned and put into a better uh, state of storage in 1990 by a local conservator named Jim Bernstein. And so we knew from his reports that it was in, in very good condition. And so we were very happy about that. But the, that the only challenge was how to, how to install it, how to get it up safely. First, um, a bunch of, of, of questions about kind of the shape the thing was in. Why, why was it in such good 
condition. It, that seems unlikely. You know, they've remained in storage since the fair. I think they, you know, when it was taken down, it was rolled face in on a pretty small diameter tube and, you know, possibly not even unrolled. And it must have been in a pretty a pretty good place. I, I don't know if the, if the War Memorial uh, Registrar knows exactly where they were at all times. But in any case, when it was unrolled in 1990 by Jim, it was in pretty good condition. It hadn't suffered from its storage at all. I mean, it, it is cracked and it was rolled face in, which is an ideal. So what he did was he rolled it face out on a larger tube with an interleaving material that would keep the surface of the paint off the next, you know, roll of material. And oh, what, can I, what can I say? The the jute-like fabric that it's on, I, I didn't do any analysis, but it's sort of a, it's sort of a, a medium, a little heavyweight sort of open weave, jute-like sort of fabric. It's definitely discolored to a, um, you know, a darker tone. So the whole painting has sort of gone a little bit brown, you know, you might say, because it was probably sort of off-white when he first used it. It's in, it's in flexible condition. I wouldn't want to fold it. It's hard to describe exactly how brittle it is, but you, you can kind of tell what, what a fabric can handle just by sort of examining it, and uh, it's in pretty good shape. The borders are actually much more sort of desiccated. They're, they're on a different fabric. I don't know why he used two different fabrics, but... So a number of the muralists who... There, there were, I think, nine muralists from whom works were commissioned for the 1915 exposition. They were all known, but maybe Dodge was maybe the most nationally known among them. He had made work for the Jefferson Building, that's the oldest building at the Library of Congress, for the state of New York, in the New York State Capitol, the governor's reception room, the, the, the Chicago World's Fair, the Algonquin Hotel in New York. Known, known, known figure. And, and you mentioned Hassam, for example, another, another painter from whom from whom murals were commissioned. However, Jules Guerin, who who kind of oversaw the mural program, in, in, in just one of the weirdest things I can really think of, basically told his painters more or less what colors of paint to use. I know, that was funny. Did you read those uh, did you read those notes from their meeting? Oh yes I did. Yes They're I did. So fun to read. Um, you know, arguing about cobalt versus ultramarine and how cobalt looked funny from below and it it was kind of fascinating. And then, and then they would decide on the color and say, okay, everyone's using chrome yellow. Okay, chrome yellow. And then they'd move on to the greens. And it was it was very funny. I, I had no idea anything like that had ever happened. I, I, I It probably hasn't happened since, right? <laughs> I know. I know the idea of telling an artist what exactly what pigment to use. However, as a conservator, so here 100 years later, you have works in front of you, the Dodge, say the Matthews, where the painters have been told what colors to use. I don't know that they were told what paints to use, but does them having been told that lead to your looking at these, you know, mammoth murals and finding things that are the same, finding things that are easier in terms of determining how to treat or deal with them 100 years on? Knowing the pigments that they chose to use, and they were, I think they were pretty much all painted in oil with an oil binder, it didn't really affect my work at all. There, you know, we did, you know, just as a matter of curiosity, mostly when we were working on the Matthews murals, since we knew that he was sort of a grump about the whole thing, and we wanted to see if he actually played by the rules and used the things that he was told to. So we tested them with XRF, and um, I determined that he actually used the ones that they decided. And he wasn't even at that meeting. He didn't go to New York. 
and he was probably very upset at being told what to use. But he used he used what he was told. Mostly, they just made them sort of match visually. No, it, it really didn't affect my work one way or the other. It's kind of interesting, but. Do you know, did it matter to you where these paintings would have been installed during the exposition and to what they would have been exposed? It was, it's interesting that they, that they were out of doors. I mean, I guess that's one thing you can get away with. They were covered, you know, in, in covered places, but they were still outside because they could be here. You know, the climate in San Francisco is so stable. It wasn't a problem. They do exhibit some sort of not deterioration, but the, in, on the Dodge, there's a there's an area at the lower left that has sort of the paint has sort of it has a sort of whitish haze, and that could be from exposure to moisture during the uh, show. Maybe rain could have got on the lower corner in that one area, or while it was stored, because you know if that edge was on the very edge of the storage and it got a little wet, you know, it could have happened there too. So there's a little blooming in the paint. And in the Matthews, kind of the same thing is happening on one of the edges. And I can't say whether that was because it was on the edge architecturally or whether it was on the edge just in storage. So other than that, no, no nothing, no. They Both murals have plaster on the back, you know, remnants of plaster from when they were adhered. They weren't really adhered. They were, I think they were nailed up. I think the plaster's just on there because the plaster was wet maybe when they put it up. I didn't remove it because I wasn't doing any sort of flattening of the, the paintings. The, there are photographs in, in the catalog for Jewel City that show where and how the murals were hung outdoors. And they really are outdoors. I mean, they're really in, in, in fairly exposed places where a little bit of breeze would have definitely pushed some rain through. So I think that that you mentioned earlier that the Matthews is the one, Victory of Culture Over Force, which is about 20 feet long, is the one on which you did the most work. Matthews is, is a well-known California painter. Visitors to San Francisco see him all over the place from the Oakland Museum to, you know, everywhere else. What did it need? What, what attention did it require? And has, and has it been on view at the War Memorial? It was on view after the fair. It was one of the paintings that was taken down and put up at the Palace of Fine Arts when it was sort of used as an art museum for a while. And there is a picture of it up uh, like above one of the entrances. And so it, it was up until sort of the mid-20s, I believe. Since I've been here about 21 years since it was stored here, we've unrolled it twice and both times I've you know, taken notes and I think its problems, which were sort of an all over blanching of the paint layer, probably from taking on humidity and giving it up in the past, just in storage. And also the there was sort of a loss of paint on the tops of the fibers from improper storage that so was rolled face in on a very small it was actually a, a little wood dowel almost and that didn't do that brittle paint any favor so um, I think the paint had sort of abraded off just by being next to the next roll if you can imagine within the roll so that was the that's what that was his problem and it was also kind of grimy whether that probably happened in the 10 years it was up maybe after after the the exposition so those are the three things. So it was a cleaning, not consolidation, but a cleaning, getting rid of that bloom sort of whitish haze that was sort of knocking the colors all out of balance, and then in painting on top of that. And that, that was about a three or four month project that we, that was, we were able to do in the studio. 
it's small enough at, at sort of a, what, 21 by 12 feet. So that was that was more work actually than the than the Dodge, just smaller. <laughs> so we mentioned earlier that painters were told what colors to use. When when the murals were installed at at the fair in 1915, some painters, I I, I don't maybe not all, touched up the paintings in C2 to fit visually better fit where they were installed or or perhaps because Jules Guerin yeah I asked them to thought thought that they needed a little color punch to to, to match or fit do you see evidence of that on on either of these I don't I'm and especially not I think it would be easy to sort of add things to the dodge just the by the way it's painted I think he could have he could have added some of those those interesting stripes of color, you know, but the Matthews, I mean, I'm just, I'm just guessing, but I can't imagine him doing anything that he was asked to do, you know, he he, famously contained. Yeah. Yeah. uh, And, and that painting, I don't think there's any, I think he did it all, you know, well before the fair in his studio on California street or wherever he was then sent it and probably didn't even show up down there. Who knows? No, that's not true. I actually didn't. He didn't he have a he had a dinner party, I think, when they were all here. And so he did get along with the artists. I just didn't. I don't know about the other. Maybe it's all apocryphal. Who knows? So I don't I don't see any evidence of an addition, an additional paint or anything like that. I was and I was looking at the Dodge thinking you know, with that in mind. And I I couldn't tell you where these floating bits of color that were referenced, you know, that that he added some sort of swimmingy sort of almost watery like you know someone wrote about that how he added some colors and i couldn't see it so the dodge is 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 enormous 47 feet wide as as we mentioned a few moments ago 12 feet tall how did it get up to where it is now at the de young above the atrium and what issues did that present for you in particular working with our amazing tech department very helpful in that they they have installed many many tapestries we have a we have a fine tapestry collection here and they are sort of experts at the oversized unstretched piece of tapestry which is a little different because it's very flexible and they they use sewing a lot with tapestry installs and robert haycock who's on our staff came up with a way to, uh, he designed three wenches, winches, winches, sorry, and um, three headers that we could attach the painting to, to lift it up, um, as you can see on the film. My job was basically to figure out how to connect the painting to whatever apparatus he came up with. And what I did, I used a, a method that has been used before. I, I think I first did it about I don't know, 25 years ago when I was uh, working at the MFA in Boston, I had an unstretched modern piece and I had to install it and I had to come up with a way to do it. And I used tabs, basically. Um, I adhered tabs to the back of the picture along the top edge with a reversible conservation adhesive called Beva. And the, using the tabs instead of one big piece of fabric allows more more sort of customization more of a stretching sort of action if you will um, when you go to attach it to a wall so you can if it's if it's creased in one place you can pull a little on this tab and that was really good to know i did that before but i also was reminded of that from our um our textile conservator sarah gates she said never use a full piece of fabric where you can use tabs it gives you much more control 
So, so those are adhered, and the top of my tabs, which were about 30 inches long, uh, I sewed on a piece of Velcro, the soft kind of the Velcro. And so here you have all these floppy little tabs coming off the top, and then they get stuck on the headers, which have the row of hook Velcro on that. So that's your connection point, right? And then once you get the header up on the wall, you can disconnect it from that and just leave it flat against the wall. And the wall is a little bit curved. Well, yeah. The reason why he designed it with three headers that are loosely connected at those two points is that the wall in Woolsey Court is very slightly curved. It's, it's sort of a concave curve. So one header, which, of course, we thought about at first, wouldn't have worked because, you know, you wouldn't have connection to the wall. I think we did end up, we ended up having a cleat installed on the wall, the, the headers go up and then sit above it. So we never actually had to remove the Velcro and, and just put it on the wall, which was one of our many, many permutations. We, we thought of about a million different ways to do this and Robert came up with the, the final solution, as it were. And then the good thing about the Dodge mural is that because it has these fabric borders, we could do anything. We, you know, all our business end of things could be you know, shown and visible and then everything gets covered up with the very elegant you know fabric borders which couldn't have anything you know we we couldn't show what, what, what we used for that you know we couldn't obviously you can't put a nail through or anything like that these brittle fabrics so what we did was we incorporated strips of metal in the onto the wall before we hung it up there and then the little borders are rolled out and rare earth magnets are just used painted to, to sort of blend in a little better and they just use them as they roll them out from either end and then the, the side ones are just they have magnets at the top mostly those magnets are very very strong and the velcro is very very strong and the adhesive is pretty strong so you know overbuilding is sort of my thing so it's it's safely up there i feel confident and uh I'm sure we probably could have gotten away with using, you know, half of what we did, but I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> so the Fine Arts Museums has made a minute-long video in which you can see all of this as, as the piece is installed. We will have that video as well, of course, as, as images of both the Dodge and the Matthews up on manpodcast.com. We may even have picture of Dodge standing in front of all three of his murals installed at the Palace of Machinery just before the fair opened. Photos from 1914, the fair opened, of course, shortly thereafter. Tricia Regan, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.